Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On today's episode, we're celebrating an organization that has been really instrumental in getting young minds involved in the cause of cannabis liberalization. Yeah, SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policies, is a national and even international organization. And as you said, it is specifically focused on organizing young people to fight back against the war on drugs, to push for the legalization of cannabis. You know, we talk often, as we should, about how this war on drugs disproportionately targets people of color, people with less money, and young people. Yeah, absolutely. And that is why student activism is so important. Being you and I have talked a lot on this show that th despite the fact that neither of us is a spring chicken any longer, we still carry with us that idealism, that fire in our bellies that makes you feel like there's this injustice out there and we just have to do something about it. And Students for Sensible Drug Policy is an organization that really lights that fire in a lot of ways and in, in a lot of people. You know, the way that I became interested in cannabis activism was through normal, was through reading stuff from normal and sort of, you know, and from you being in stock and, you know, like really getting a sense for how we can take action to fight for this plant that we love, right? Uh, because really it just does not sit well that there's so many people who don't have access to it when they need it for medical purposes. So there's so many people in jail for it when they just were uh, cultivating it or selling it to, to make a living. So truly big ups to SSDP. Yeah, and when we look at that specific organization and the reasons that it formed, and we're going to talk to one of the founders of SSDP in this episode, it was because of rules that specifically disenfranchised young people from accessing student aid if you had a drug conviction. And so we see this pattern that we talk about a lot on this show. The very laws that oppress us also create the activists and the activism that leads to our liberation. And our guest on today's show has been at the forefront of that dynamic for a couple of decades and really shared his wisdom with us of how we can take this revolutionary force in society. When we look at revolutionary movements all over the world, they're so often led by young people. Young people are so often dismissed and told that they don't have power, they don't have experience, they don't have resources. And that's simply because this society fears young people. Young people are foresighted, see the future, see the problems. And this organization, SSDP, shows what happens when you organize young people for the long haul. You can make these kinds of sustained changes in society. Yeah, absolutely. And a little special shout out to our guest on today's episode, Chris Crane, because I just learned recently after we had done this interview that he is actually the brother of another important cannabis person in my life, Josh Crane who is in the cannabis industry and has been to every single one of my comedy shows in LA. He's always there front row, him and his wife. So special shout out to them. This truly is a cannabis family that we've got going on out here. 
That's right, and of course, Chris Crane is somebody we both know and admire from his long activism, but he's also now at the forefront of the cannabis industry. He is currently an executive with KCSA, which is a top public relations firm in the industry, but... Prior to that, he actually founded something called Forefront Ventures, which is a publicly traded cannabis consulting firm. It's valued at over a billion dollars. So this is not the usual kind of person we look to on great moments in weed history. But what makes Chris different for us is that he's also been part of this cannabis and drug law reform movement for a long time. Going back to when he was a student in the 1990s, he's going to tell us about the formation of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and his first jobs out of college were working for, as you say, NORML, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and then he was the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy from 2006 to 2009. So he put a lot of time into activism, and it grew into this career. That's something that's really different from when old codgers like ourselves were, were young people, this idea uh, that cannabis can be a career. Yeah, absolutely. It was a really enlightening interview, and we cannot wait for you guys to hear it. Okay, so before we get into it, a little bit of housekeeping. Of course, as always, we want to shout out everybody who supports us on Patreon. We love our patrons. We hope you're enjoying the bonus content that we're putting up just for our patrons. And if you're not a patron, Please consider it. Check us out. Just Google Great Moments in Weed History Patreon. Any contribution is absolutely welcome. And of course, if you don't have the ducats right now, but you still love the show, it would be a huge solid to us if you could tell your friends about it and mention us to anybody who's really into weed and weed history and finds this stuff as fascinating as we do. All right, so let's get into it. I've got a bong packed over here. Bean, how about yourself? Oh, I've got a joint that is the exact size and shape of my middle finger, which is my activism joint when we're discussing <laughs> uh, fucking over the man and changing these laws. That's exactly what I want. But, you know, wait, hope you might not have your joint rolled. You might not have your blunt split. You might not have your bowl packed or your bong packed or your dab ready to endabulate. It's cool, man. It's cool, lady. It's cool, non-binary person. All you gotta do is hit pause, because when you're rolled up and ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. So we are here with Chris Crane, who was a founding member of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, a very, very impactful cannabis liberalization advocacy group. Chris, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a longtime listener and a fan, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm geeking out here a little bit. It's like to spend some time with you guys. <laughs> That's awesome to hear, man. No, we're very glad to have you. And so just to get us started... Can you tell us, going all the way back, about your personal history with our favorite plant? How did it all begin for Chris Crane? Sure. So, I mean, it actually goes back 
to my childhood, um, my, my dad was a medical cannabis patient back before that was a, a thing. He, he passed away in 1986 when I was eight years old, um, and he had a very rare form of emphysema. Using marijuana for a, a lung disease you know, sounds kind of counterintuitive, but we know that you know, cannabis is a vasodilator. It opens the lung passages. And you know, if he were alive today or if he were around today, he'd use, vapor, you know, use vaporizer, but that didn't exist in the 80s. So when he would have these horrible breathing attacks, he would roll up a joint, he would take a hit or two of a joint. And, and it would allow him to breathe. And so I saw that at a young age and it really you know, left an impression on me as I got older and started going through like New York City's version of the D.A.R.E. program. It wasn't actually D.A.R.E., but it was the same shit. And uh, being told, you know, all these awful things about marijuana and all the stuff it's going it, 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 to do to mess up your life. It, it was a kind of a light bulb moment for me because it's like, no, like that was the stuff that helped my dad. And so it just caused me to question everything I was being told about marijuana, about drugs, about drug policy. And it led me to become an activist uh, by the time I got to college, which is where, you know, I started with normal at American University, which became students for sensible drug policy and kind of, you know, moved on from there to uh, working at normal and then working as the executive director of students for sensible drug policy. This was the 80s. This was the real OG Reagan era. Just say no, not 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 as a turn of phrase, but as the actual messaging you were getting. Oh, this was absolutely, yeah. I mean, my father passed away in December of 1986, very much the height of the, uh, of the Reagan era, you know, just say no days. So this is how you were sort of introduced to the concept of cannabis. How did you actually start consuming it? When did it first become something that you were personally into? My sophomore year of high school was the first time I ever tried weed. I was actually on a on an exchange program. I spent a semester, my second semester of my sophomore year of high school. I was a I was a, a student in the New York New York City public school system, and I got selected to spend a semester in Prague, which was you know shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So there was I mean there was like four McDonald's in the city, and it was like still a big deal. And it was actually in one of those McDonald's that I bought weed for the first time. Um, wow, that's a- very progressive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did yeah. not know that. You know maybe that's how communism fell is mcdonald's started selling weed behind the iron curtain we'll look into that for a future episode definitely redeemed the franchise (laughs) (laughs) to to be fair i did not buy it from mcdonald's i bought it from another (laughs) another high school friend of ours in a mcdonald's i I think Uh, also it's called uh, a royale with weed over there (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's a good one uh yeah so i buy i bought some weed with a with a friend of mine and we went back to his house and and smoked it and he got really high and i got nothing <laughs> which is i think fairly common for for first time smokers time, yep yeah. uh and it took a few more times uh you know doing some gravity bongs on a ski trip my junior year and still did nothing and then i i got some weed from a I don't remember where from some somebody on the street in Manhattan. I mean, it was one of those. I was literally walking down the street near my house and was like, "You want some weed?" I was like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" And I, I bought a little from him at like sixteen, and that got me really high, and realized I really enjoyed it. And street uh, weed that worked. Huh? Shout out that guy. So, so we know how you started to to get high. When did the injustice of cannabis prohibition first dawn on you as a young person, as it does for so many of us? Yeah, pretty early. I mean, really, really in high school, even before I started smoking, right? It was it was those early, you know, drug education programs that where they were telling us all about how evil weed is and all the terrible things it's going to do to you know mess up your life. And that was when I was like, no, like, this is the stuff that helped my dad. And I, I knew that like dad wasn't a bad person and I knew that it helped him. And so I started questioning it. And, and I also started thinking about, you know, sort of more broadly about drug policy in general, because, you know, we also had some 
fairly serious substance abuse issues in my family. I had a, you know, a, a brother-in-law that, that died from a heroin overdose and another family member that struggled with heroin addiction for years. And, you know, thinking about like, is, are, is the way that we handle drug policies helping them or hurting them? And it was pretty obvious that it was making the situation worse. So I just kind of started to question everything. When did that questioning sort of turn into action? What was the first concrete... Uh, step you took to say, you know, this system is wrong, these laws are wrong, and and I personally want to do something about it. It was my freshman year of college. Um, I was working at the American University Phonathon, uh, which was basically, we were the people that called alumni and begged for money. Um, I worked there for four years, a terrible job. As my supervisor at the Phonathon was involved with the American University Normal chapter and was like, hey, you know, we were talking about weed one day, I think, at, at, at work, and he's like, you should come to a normal meeting. And I did. And I'm pretty sure my first normal meeting, they had uh, Keith Strop as the guest speaker. So I got to see Whoa. Keith, you know, my future boss, basically. Founder of normal. Yep. Yeah. Got to see Keith. It was a nice thing about being in DC, right? As you get all these, you know, DC people can, you know, just get on the subway and come up to the school. So I got to see Keith speak. I was really excited about it. And then the first event that I participated in, which was just a few weeks later, was when uh, Barry McCaffrey, who was then uh, Bill Clinton's drug czar, uh, came to give a policy speech at American University. And the local normal chapter, um, which at the time Troy Dayton uh, was involved, was, was one of the senior leaders in, uh, he was a year older than me, uh, they put on this big protest of, uh, of Barry McCaffrey's speech, um, where we, we use the adage, you know, if you, can't, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. So Barry McCaffrey came into this room to give his speech, and he was confronted with a room full of students with gags in their mouth. And uh, we sat there the whole time, gagged, and listened to his, you know, his speech. And, uh, and then I think we chased his car down the street after he left just to make him feel uncomfortable. You know, as soon as they start calling someone a czar, you know shit's going bad. You yeah, it's usually I mean? not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have like a Cheeto czar or something. It's always, it's always for something awful. It's always something bad. Even before the formation of SSDP, what were the particular issues that made this something college students had to confront? I mean, the big one was really students getting in trouble on campus for weed. You know, I had friends who, you know, got busted by campus police and got kicked out of university housing. That was a really big motivating issue, I think, for a lot of students on campuses then, because if you got caught with, you know, if you got caught with even a small amount of cannabis and you lived on campus, you got kicked off campus, right? And that was true at almost every school. Once I started looking into it a little bit and just did some cursory reading, it became very apparent that the experience that I was having as a you know somewhat privileged white undergraduate college student was very different than it, this you know the same age black kid or brown kid in you know in in the city was having um, right the arrest data really jumped out at me and I think most of my cohorts like very you know that that, that just stood out really quickly right? when you looked at you know it was like fifty percent of arrests for people of color and like sixty something percent of convictions and like eighty something percent of of incarcerations and you know as somebody that kind of cared about racial justice and social justice in general it became clear really quickly that. This was a major social justice and racial justice issue. But I think in terms of like what was motivating people on the ground in college, it was we were seeing our, our friends get busted and get kicked out of housing and, and then eventually losing their financial aid. That was the big catalyst moment uh, that came in the, in the foundation of SSDP. Oh, wow. So what was the first actual activist action or a little alliteration there <laughs> that you actually employed? 
Well, for me personally, it was actually probably that McCaffrey event, um, and that was still that was still pre SSDP during the during the normal days. I think when it came to SSDP, it was a series of actions around this financial aid issue. Like this is the issue that started the organization. So in in 1998, Bill Clinton signed the Higher Education Act reauthorization into law, which you know, HEA needs to be reauthorized every decade or so. And then Congressman Mark Souter in, installed in the Higher Education Act a clause that said that if somebody has a drug conviction on their record, they'll be automatically denied financial aid to attend college. And there was some nuance to it, right? It would, the amount of time they were denied depended on the the type of conviction and how many they had on their record, but it was retroactive. So if you had been convicted of a of a of a marijuana offense, even a possession offense, when you were like eighteen and you wanted to go back to school when you were forty five, you would be denied financial aid because of that conviction from your you know from your from your youth. And it had a huge impact. I mean, there were you know over two hundred thousand students were denied aid over the first like five or six years that this was law. Basically, you had students who were primarily running normal chapters at the time. Um, some were running, you know, other organizations just kind of started talking and decided we needed we needed to do something about this. And interestingly, this was the start of the internet. And so they got on email lists, which was still, it was still relatively new. And DRCNet, the Drug Reform Coordination Network, collected all of the .edu email addresses that they had on their email list and started sending out emails about this new law and created a forum for students that had identified themselves as interested in drug policy and marijuana policy to get together and talk. And I think what's 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 fascinating about this is we talk a lot for obvious reasons about how racist the war on drugs is. Uh, but this particular financial aid amendment to this law also shows how classist it is. Because sure. if your family has money, it doesn't affect you at all. I mean, it really was the catalyst for the student movement and the war on drugs, right? There were normal normal campus chapters that had existed for you know decades. There were a few other marijuana policy groups, independent ones out there. But this kind of got everybody together. And of course, again, it, it, it corresponded with the rise of the internet and people getting email addresses for the first time, right? This was all in the late 90s. Folks started talking. They went to DRCNet, which had facilitated this, this discussion. DRCNet gave them a desk in, the, in, in their office in DuPont Circle in D.C. And um, Chris Lotlikar uh, came down from Rochester to D.C., became the first national director and started organizing around it. And we went from you know five chapters to like a few hundred in, I think, like less than two years. Um, it really just became this this big movement. And it was really all around, we need to repeal this law. We were able to get students in because of this law that directly impacted their lives and the lives of their friends on campus. And with that, we're able to expose them to all of the injustices of the drug war, which, you know, which led to SSDP becoming, you know, one of the largest student organizations in the country in a, in a really short amount of time. I mean, even Rolling Stone did a, a cover story on, on SSDP back then as the, you know, called them the new anti-war movement, which is something we were, we were billing ourselves as at the time. Another aspect of this at the time was the Rave Act, correct? When, when did that come into law and how did that bring more people into this? This movement and who was sort of the villain behind that bit of legislation? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so the Rave Act, if I remember correctly, I think it was around two thousand one or so, two thousand two thousand one. Um, so it was it was kind of the next catalyst moment for SSDP, but it essentially said that 
if you are a concert promoter or a concert producer or a club owner, that you could be charged as a drug kingpin if people engage in drug dealing inside your facility or at your concert. If you think about it from like a promoter standpoint, the promoter has no idea who's in the concert, right? Who's at their rave. But, you know, people were using at that time, and this was really geared towards, this was really targeted to ecstasy, which was, this was sort of the, you know, the, the, the first, well, I guess second big rise of, of ecstasy as a, as a, you know, fun drug that club kids were using. Uh, but the first time it got national recognition. And this was all pushed by our current president, Joe Biden, when, uh, you know, when, 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 when Joe was, uh, was a senator, he was the champion of the Rave Act. And I mean, if you look at where we are today, it's no surprise that, while Biden has, I mean, he's way better now than he was in 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 you know two thousand one two thousand two. He's come he's come a long way for him. He's still really far behind the center of his own party on this issue. Yeah, he's uh, a drug war grandpa, as as we like to say on this show. Well, let's let's go back to this to this student uprising against the war on drugs and particularly SSDP and and what grew out of that, not just in terms of policy, but in terms of a social movement against the war on drugs. If I remember correctly, I think I missed the first national conference, although that was real. I mean, it was like 40 people. The one the next year, which was my senior year, when I got very heavily involved in SSDP, joined the leadership of the SSDP chapter at American University, and we held a, a national conference at George Washington University. We had 150 to 200 students, I think, come from all around the country. Ralph Nader was our keynote speaker. Uh, in fact, we had to we had to find a separate venue for Nader's speech because the, the, the venue we had at GW wasn't big enough to, to hold everybody that wanted to come for it. That was, for me, the sort of crystallizing moment that like, oh, I'm not alone on this, right? It's not just a few of us at American that you know, are kind of outcasts, even among our own, you know, among our, among our, our, our own our own student body at, at the school, right? Because this wasn't a popular issue to be working on at the time. But to see that there were there were kids coming from you know every corner of the country to DC to work on something like this was was kind of the moment I realized like this could really be a big thing. And interestingly, I mean, if you play that forward. That SSDP conference, which has been held every year since then, has been the catalyzing moment for so many young drug policy activists. Like, I can't tell you how many people, when I was executive director in the late 2000s, it was the number one thing that people told me was the reason why they dedicated themselves to SSDP. And that was true even in the very beginning. It, 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 like, it's the light bulb moment for so many students who go like, no, this is what I'm going to spend my time on for the rest of my college career. And for a, a portion of those for the rest of their lives, the rest of their careers. And I think going, going back to those days, I think this is an interesting sort of paradox. And I say this with joy. I think for some students who are young people now and involved in SSDP or involved in this movement, it could be part of a clear career path. And I think that's wonderful. But at the time, uh, it probably felt like the opposite to you and to a lot of your uh, cohorts. Yeah, it it would get you blacklisted. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people were like, "You're never going to be able to get a real job after this." I mean, I can't tell you how many people, even in my own family, even people who liked weed in my own family, saying like, "You're never going to be able to get another real job after this." Well, hey, you know, here I am today. I'm the you know president of a publicly traded cannabis company, so um, I guess I proved them wrong. Uh, <laughs> but but, uh, but it was but it was absolutely. I mean, everybody heard it back then, right? You're never going to be able to get a real job. This is going to be this is career suicide. 
people are going to Google you and find all this stuff. And what are you thinking? And you're right now it's a career path. I mean, it really is like they, they people want to get into the cannabis industry or want to get into, you know, professional drug policy advocacy and they have SSDP on their resume that gets their resume to the top of the pile. Like it basically guarantees they're going to get an interview. Yeah, no, it, it's incredible. I think, you know, all three of us here and probably a bunch of people listening rolled the dice like that at one point. And, you know, everyone was like, no one's ever going to take you seriously. And suddenly the world changes around you. And I think that that type of vindication is pretty unique. I mean, that's why I think it's so special that for us as cannabis people to be alive at this very, very specific point in time where we're going from a relatively short-lived but very deep prohibition to now it's undoing, right? I mean, what sweet, sweet vindication, man. What I told you so fodder, right? Everyone was like, you know, what you're saying about weed might be true. Maybe it's not that bad, but it's illegal. And you're a criminal if you're smoking it or if you haven't. And I'm like, guess what, motherfucker? <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's wild, man. I like... I have relatives who, you know, back then were telling me like you're crazy. Who are now like calling me up for like cannabis stock advice and, uh, you yeah, know, right. I mean, I, I had a relative. I won't say who, but I, you know, I had a relative who was like probably the, one of the more anti marijuana relatives I, I, I had in my family. Um, call me up recently, being like, I've got this piece of property in my family, and like, what do I need to do to convert it into a cannabis farm? Like, it's just the world has 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 taken a total 180 on this thing. Uh, motion to name this episode. Guess what, motherfucker? Uh, <laughs> Seconded. <laughs> and I, I think it's also, you know, one thing I think it really shows is how much of a propaganda war this always was. And I think this reflects on our larger political moment now. We're in a propaganda war of totality of people who just want to erase truth. I always like to point out to people, if you've been following the drug war, that's nothing new. Right. Uh, creeping fascism is nothing new. Total propaganda against the truth is nothing new. Abusive science, anti-science, yeah. anti abusive policing. I'm becoming a meme lord in my in my middle age. Uh, yeah, he really is. <laughs> but I made a meme that said the drug war is a pilot program for American fascism. It's a hundred percent true. It's a hundred percent correct. I and mean, you look at the you look at the tactics that that the government uh, was using around the drug war for for decades. And, and that's exactly right. And it was and it was amazing to see how they shifted. Right. Because as you know, as they would put out a, they would put out a talking point that would become the talking point du jour. And, you know, once it was eventually disproved and the public realized it was bullshit, they'd move on to something else. Right. And that's where you got the, you know, the a, a motivational syndrome to the gateway theory. Right. To like, I mean, first it was marijuana causes violence. Then it was, you know, marijuana makes you a lazy slob. Well, like th those two can't coexist. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, maybe it's not as bad as the other drugs, but it leads you to do all the other drugs. It's like, <laughs> right. Right. Like right. Grasping right. at straws. And, you know, and somebody like Kevin Sabet, who I used to debate regularly when I was at SSTP, we did a whole debate series. Wow. For, for folks at home, Kevin Sabet is a super anti-cannabis advocate. Yes. And anytime there, anytime the press wants an anti-marijuana quote, right, it's, it's, it's Kevin and Project or somebody out of Project Sam. Um, but, you know, Kevin back in the day was, you know, rolling out the gateway theory and all of these other, you know, all these other talking points. But he is politically astute and smart enough 
to know that that doesn't work anymore. And so he shifted his messaging to big marijuana. And if we legalize, then, you know, the same evil business people that marketed, you know, uh, you know, Joe Camel to your kids are going to start, you know, marketing, you know, Joe Cannabis to your kids. And we, you know, we shouldn't be witnessing, you know, we shouldn't be arresting people for marijuana, but we shouldn't be licensing businesses because it's going to lead to out of control. I mean, Kevin, Kevin Sabet all of a sudden is a socialist on this, right? Because mm. that messaging resonates more with people who no longer buy the gateway theory. They don't buy the arguments that he was making 20 years ago. So he disavows those and he puts a different boogeyman in their head. And like, that's what these guys have been doing for decades. And it's still, it's still going on. I just can't imagine being Kevin Sabet now and like putting all of my energy into what's so obviously a losing cause. Like, you know, 15 years ago was something else, but now like what a depressing job that must be. Yeah, that's true. And on behalf of the podcast, Kevin Sabet, uh, if you're listening Fuck you deeply <laughs> from all of us here. You fucking suck. You're a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. We, we should you know, mention, I, you know, Chris, we should mention, you know, you, uh, one of the things I find fascinating about you is you retain the heart of an activist and your actions belie that, but you've also managed to be quite successful in this new cannabis economy. Abdullah and I are not like that. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we cannot contain our rage. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we salute you for fulfilling that role. Uh, well, look, it's not, it, this was not planned. Like, this was, this was, this was not the, this was not the blueprint I laid out years ago. You know, I got into the industry for, predominantly activist reasons, right? I mean, when I got in, it was it was late 2009. I had just left SSDP. I was super inspired by what Steve D'Angelo and some of those pioneers were doing out in Northern California. And Steve invited me to move to Oakland and start a, you know, start help, help him start a, a business, getting people to open Harborside model dispensaries. And for me, it was, I mean, it was a real light bulb moment realizing that what was going on with these early stores, right? These early marijuana businesses was an act of civil disobedience that was, you know, because it was all federally, still federally illegal. I mean, my publicly traded cannabis company is still federally illegal. And I I still try and remind everybody in the industry that what you are doing is an act of civil disobedience. I love saying that to investor conferences because they're the last people to think that they're, you know, they're, 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 that they're, that they're activists. Um, But it's true. I mean, it was, it was, it, it, it crystallized to me that if you could walk somebody through a place like Harborside in 2009, and have them see the inventory control protocols that they had in place, the security, how happy people are, how normal it all felt, right? How much like a normal store it felt that nobody could walk through that and go, that should be illegal, right? And so it dawned on me that the it was the industry that was going to take this movement to the next level because this is what's going to take it from a theoretical uh, right, because so many people had it drilled in their heads from the time they're really young that marijuana is bad, it's evil, it's you know all the shit we heard in Dare and whatnot. Unless you can break that stereotype, right, the stereotype of a of cannabis distribution or, or you know a pot deal being you know a shady street corner deal like where I've got my first weed that got me high, right, or uh, you know or a couple burnouts in their parents' basement, which none of which is really true or that true. Like most people or like their pot dealers. Yeah, or wrong, right? And most people like like their weed dealers, right? You, know, you kind of, you know, you, they come to your house, you hang, or you go to their house, you hang out, you smoke a joint, right? But like, but 
unless you, the only way that you could break that stereotype that people had was to show them what a post-prohibition world will look like. And that's why I got into the industry, because I realized this was going to do as much, if not more, to end prohibition as the activist work that I had been doing. And like, and maybe I'll be able to make more than an activist salary in the process. Um, that was, you know, that was an added bonus, but it wasn't the motivator, right? The motivator was, to me, this was always related. The industry was always activism to me. And also, if we leave the industry to capitalists alone, they're certainly not going to do right by it. Um, so I think sure. that that's really important. But I guess going back to SSDP for for a minute, can you can you talk about some of the other landmarks, some of the victories, some of the points where you really saw the effect that organizing young people could have? Sure. So, so the first big one was the student aid provision that I had mentioned where, you know, in 2006, when I first joined as the executive director, we got it scaled back um, so that it no longer applied, applied retroactively. Um, and it also then only applied to uh, distribution convictions, no longer to possession convictions. So the number of people impacted went way down. And then we just got it fully repealed this past year. So it's no longer an issue at all. Um, also, I mean, just a, 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 a fun part of this, Mark Souter, the guy who pushed this law, who was one of the biggest, like, sort of evangelical moralists in Congress, ended up uh, having to resign. I am so ashamed to have hurt those I love. Now at six, Congressman Mark Souter comes clean. In a political shocker, he confesses to having an affair before suddenly resigning. Um, so we, we had fun with that one. Um, you know, a, a couple other moments that I think were good, you know, sort of big catalyst moments for us. One was when I was there, when I saw that we could really impact change was actually something that that you guys cover. You did a whole show on the Bong Hits for Jesus Supreme Court case. Um, yeah, which was a story. fantastic episode, by the way. But if there was one piece that you guys missed uh, as I was listening to it, it was it was actually SSDP's involvement in that case, um, oh. and it was and it was on two levels, uh, right? So I don't need to rehash the case because if if you're listening and you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to it. It's phenomenal. If um, bong hits for Jesus doesn't get you interested, there's nothing we can add. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, who who doesn't love bong hits for Jesus? Um, uh, but uh, we, most we, a majority we, of the Supreme Court. <laughs> Well, sort of. Uh, so, the, and and this is where. So it was actually. So the 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 conclusion to this was actually a bit more nuanced than I think you guys got into in the in the episode. So what happened there was we we got involved on two levels. One was we wanted to change the public perception of the case from this you know silly bong hits for Jesus slogan to this being a real free speech issue, which is what it was. I mean, that's ultimately what the Supreme Court was considering was do students have the right to talk about drugs and drug policy in school without the fear of being punished? And so on the public perception level, we got a small grant, uh, pretty sure it was from the Drug Policy Alliance at the time, and we brought a bunch of students to Washington, D.C. on the day of the oral arguments and we had them unfurl this gigantic banner on the Supreme Court steps that looked exactly like the bong hits for Jesus sign, even with the number four, but said free speech for students. Um, and, and then we had a bunch of people with you know, free speech for students placards all over the steps of the Supreme Court. The next day, when uh, that night and the next day when all the media coverage came out, that was the picture in every newspaper around the country. It was no longer bong hits for Jesus. It was free speech for students. The other thing that we did was we filed an amicus brief in the case. Um, and actually, SSDP alumni, uh, Alex Kreit, who had become a law professor at uh, Jefferson School of Law out in California, drafted an amicus brief that we filed where we basically argued and this was strategic because we recognized the makeup of the court was conservative enough that 
that the that the the the, the good side was going to lose, right? That we were very likely going to lose the case. And what we wanted to do was draw a distinction between students promoting drug use in school and students talking about drug policy. And so we filed this brief that basically said, look, you can't punish a student for starting an SSDP chapter or writing a a, a paper on the benefits of marijuana legalization or wearing a shirt saying legalize marijuana, right? Not saying smoke dope, but like legalize pot and really tried to draw the distinction between speech about encouraging use and speech about encouraging policy reform. And we were the only brief that really made that distinction. And in the end, while they did ban students or not ban, but they did allow st uh, schools to punish students for promoting drug use. There was a concurring opinion. So there were three justices that agreed with the government's uh, three of the justices agreed with the, with the government's argument, which would have allowed them to ban any drug related speech at all. But two of the justices joined in a concurring opinion, which meant that the concurring opinion became precedent because without it, they didn't have enough votes to win, which specifically used our argument in, in protecting speech around drug policy. So even though we even though the, the, the case was considered a loss. Speech around drug policy is still considered protected speech in schools today because of that concurring opinion, which relied on our legal brief. Wow, that's crazy. Well, thank you so much for that addendum to our Bong Hits for Jesus episode. That's absolutely <laughs> incredible and a really smart strategy to break through, uh, you know, this really obviously unjust view that it's like, oh, drugs are so bad. Cannabis is so bad that like people shouldn't even be able to talk about it. And I think it is a really slippery slope. I mean, I remember being a young kid in high school and getting in trouble for something that I did like adjacent to the campus over a weekend. Where does the jurisdiction of the school end? Are students essentially prisoners in school so that the school can just dictate whatever they want? To pick up on that, the idea of our, our students prisoners, one of the SSDP slogans that I think really broke through and really distilled this issue was... That's right. Yeah. In fact, schoolsnotprisons.com takes you to ssdp.org. Uh, we, we actually used that as our primary URL for years uh, because it, it, it was, it's easier to remember than ssdp.org for one, but, um, but, it, but I think it just speaks to the heart of this, right? Like, would you rather your tax dollars be going to schools or would you rather be going to prisons? And I think most people would look at that and go, yeah, schools are a better idea than jails. And this, this was a time when mass incarceration was happening but the awareness of it, certainly within the larger political system, was just not there. And so I think that does always speak to young people as being simultaneously always told to be stay in your place and you don't know what you're talking about and you don't have the experience and uh, you need to do X and Y and Z before you get a say in society. And yet young people always being ahead of the curve and always seeing the problems in society with these fresh eyes. Another great thing about SSDP is going beyond just saying, okay, here's these issues that directly affect college students and saying, no, this entire drug war is wrong. And actually the people suffering the most are at the margins of society and putting the focus on mass incarceration at a time uh, when that was really just ramping up. Uh, how, how, I guess that's not a question, but if you want to pick up from there, sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a fair point. Like that was, 
we talk about, you know, going back to the, your earlier question about like what were some of the my, my motivating factors. I mean, that was another one, like looking at the incarceration statistics. It was mind blowing how fast we ramped up incarceration in this country starting in the Reagan era, right? Starting in the early 80s. And by the time I got involved in this in the late 90s, I mean, we had seen it was something like a four time, you know, four X um, uh, increase in the number of incarcerated people in this country. Um, and it was, you know, the, the, again, the, the stats on who those people were um, was very clear that. You know that that this was something that was targeting disadvantaged communities, communities of color, right? People that that didn't have you know political clout or political capital. Michelle Alexander, a few years later, you know, really nailed it with the the, the drug war and mass incarceration being the new Jim Crow, and drew that straight line from slavery to Jim Crow to the war on drugs and mass incarceration. If they had engaged in the same tactics in white suburban communities around the country, the drug war would have been over in a heartbeat. But they knew they could get away with it in these communities because of the stigma associated with the people there, right? Because because of the you know the rhetoric that you got out of the the Reagan and the Bush and the Clinton administrations, right? Not not taking the Democrats letting the Democrats off the hook here at all on this one either, right? Of like super predators and crime being driven by you know basically you know black people in the inner cities and they became commodities in this business, right? For-profit business of mass incarceration that came directly out of those very same Jim Crow laws. And maybe to, to, to bring it back, can you, can you talk about where SSDP is today, the size of the organization? What are the issues that are important and the focus of the young activists uh, of today? And what do you see as the lasting legacy of, of your role in, in being one of the founders of the organization? Today, SSDP is, I believe, the largest student organization in the United States, um, certainly the largest single-issue student organization in the United States with a global network. We've got affiliates in like 30-something countries around the world now, uh, and they all handle you know, issues that are important to their countries, right? which is very different. And you know, the drug policy issues in, in Ghana are very different than you know, drug policy issues in Canada. But you know, here in the United States, we've got chapters on, I think, around 300 college campuses. I still stay involved. I'm still the treasurer of the organization, uh, trying to you know, help the next generation. We just hired a new executive director, uh, Jason Ortiz, uh, which I'm quite proud of. Jason was, uh, was an undergrad uh, activist when I was the executive director in the late 2000s. Uh, you know, he went on to have his, his own very impressive uh, you know, career around political advocacy. Um, he's a big part of the reason why Connecticut's going to legalize cannabis here uh, in the next couple of weeks. He's been working on that for years. Uh, he was a chair of the Minority Cannabis Business Association for a while. Um, so, you know, kind of left his campus days and, and cut his chops in the, you know, in, the, in the professional advocacy world and has now come back to helm the organization. And I think he's really the right person for this moment. He's the, he's, he's one of the, he's the first person of color to helm the organization since like 1999. And, and I think at this moment, you know, if you talk about what's most important to the students today, they, they so see the intersectionality of this issue um, and, and, and really understand the impact that this issue has had on communities of color and how this fits into, you know, movements like Black Lives Matter and issues of police reform. So I think that's, that's where SSDP is, is largely focused. And on the cannabis issue, you know, I think the focus today is a lot on on issues of equity and social equity and making sure that the industry that's emerging out of prohibition 
has a place for those people and those communities that have been disproportionately harmed by prohibition, that if we just legalize it and a bunch of, you know, already rich white guys come in and get even richer, like we haven't really done our job as activists, um, that there has to be a role for those people who bore the brunt of prohibition. And SSDP is, is you know, one of the organizations leading the way in, 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 in doing that. Yeah. And just to highlight the importance of that fight, you know, the battle has shifted for so many activists because in legal cannabis, right, every state that legalizes adult use cannabis that sort of starts licensing this nascent industry, every single place has issues of equity in that people with financial backing are able to enter the industry and people who were victims of the drug war cannot And in a lot of cases, the social equity programs are so disorganized and bureaucratic and ineffective that the people who are victims of the drug war who enter those social equity programs end up spending a whole lot of money on renting a storefront, you know, Mm -hmm. paying legal fees and all that stuff, and then end up not getting a license because inherently states don't understand what the cannabis industry is supposed to look like. I think there's the assumption with a lot of squares that, oh, this is a brand new industry. Billions, billions of dollars are going to appear out of nowhere. And suddenly people are going to come into a store and buy whatever crap that's been, you know, packaged and sitting there for eight weeks or whatever. And the truth of the matter is that this is an industry with very specific tastes, with a multitude of audiences who all want different things, all kinds of different consumers. And until you understand that, there is always going to be a black market. We're always going to be forcing people into the black market. And I, for one, say, as an act of defiance, that if you're in a state that is inequitable, buy black market cannabis. I do. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, 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 and I support people who I, I believe are uh, have their hearts in the right place when it comes to that. But it, it would be incredible to see actual equity in the cannabis industry, but based on the fact that we're in America and we know the history of capitalistic forces in this country, do you actually believe that at some point we will have an equitable cannabis industry or is the word cannabis next to the word industry just always going to be a curse? It's gonna, I think it's going to be a mix, um, right? I mean, I, I, is it going to be the industry that we want to see ultimately? No, of course not, right? Because it's, it's it's big money now, right? There's real capital, there's big banks, right? All this, everyone, you know, big companies are getting involved. And, just, and we've only scratched the surface, right? Like it's still federally illegal. So the real, like the big hedge funds, the big private equity firms, the, you know, the, the, the you know, Philip Morris's, uh, you know, yeah. of the world, they're not even in this yet. Yeah. Um, so we talk about like big, you know, the big cannabis companies today, like big cannabis companies today are, are freaking peanuts next mm-hmm. to who's coming once, once federal legalization happens. So, I mean, I'm a little bit resigned to the fact that this is going to be a piece of it. But what we need to do right now is take advantage of the fact that those folks are not in it yet and make sure that there is an avenue for enough equity operators to get licensed to get in so that when the big guys start coming in and buying everyone up, they're going to buy up some of these folks, too. And it's going to create generational wealth in communities that otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity to get it. And I think when we talk about legalization, it's important to talk about it in two different ways. Step one, no more arrests. Whatever is happening with the buying and the selling aspects of cannabis, if the arrests go down 99% because of legalization, that is a huge and sweeping change in people's lives. 
Yes. And then when people say, well, I don't like how it is coming, whether it's Kevin Sabet saying, I don't want big marijuana, or whether it's great moments in weed history taking an extremely skeptical view to big marijuana, then let's overthrow capitalism. Uh, because right. that's what we're talking about. And right, I'm right. with you. And let's fucking do it. But you can't hide behind that and say, well, I want it to be capitalism. But for this one product that I really care about, I think it should be equitable. <laughs> and yeah. that's what I hear from a lot <laughs> right. of people. This fantasy world where they don't want to come to grips with what capitalism is how it affects all of our lives. What I just think is unique about cannabis, and to Chris's point, we don't have these entrenched, massive entities yet. It is coming, and it has been sort of slowly creeping in, but there is still an opportunity to look at this as a great place to make some fundamental changes in how we organize the economic life of this country yeah. and the world. I mean, I, I sincerely hope so. I certainly would like to be an optimist. And I will say that when I first got into cannabis advocacy, I bought into that dream. I was like, yeah, let's legalize weed and then there will be dispensaries and it'll all be fair and equitable. But then seeing what happened in California with the switch over from Prop 215 to Prop 64 and in L.A., there were hundreds of dispensaries that were owned and operated by minorities, right, who served their own yeah. minority communities, who sold them cannabis. And then with prop, the passage of Prop 64, adult-use cannabis was legalized, right? All cannabis, including medical cannabis, started being taxed. And in terms of licensing, the state started sending the authorities, started sending pigs out to shut down all these minority-owned dispensaries and say, oh, well, the only ones that get grandfathered in are these handful. Guess who owned those? A right. bunch well, of Well, I mean, L.A. LA could not have fucked that up any worse than they did. L.A. could but. not have fucked that up any worse than they did. And I, I think it's a mess because the problem there is that L.A. is America's weed mecca. I know we all yeah. thought it was going to be Denver for like eight months there, but it wasn't. It's L.A. It was the and altitude that that convinced. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was they got the legalization right. first. But no, you're, look, you're 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 right. I mean, you're right on all of this. And like, I've got I can't tell you how many times I've gotten questions from like regulators saying, "Hey, we've got this new legal industry. How do we go? How do we go about shutting down the illicit market?" Really, the answer is give those people licenses. Yeah, like, exactly. But they will never do that because no. they're greedy and they're capitalists. And they're like, well, the only way we want to make money is not only by doing a good job and selling a good product. Actually, we'll lean on the authorities to enforce a new drug war against people who don't have licenses. So now suddenly in the last couple of years, there's a bunch of raids in L.A., raids on dispensaries. That sounds like drug war stuff to me. And the thing that I fear is that by compromising with the government, by comp compromising with the authorities, we have given up control of a thing that was actually ours, of a thing that actually operated and worked, despite the fact that it was in the shadows, despite the fact that we bore the brunt of some enforcement. There was less enforcement doing it in the shadows than there is now. I mean, what would you say to a dispensary owner or a cannabis business person who says that? 
I think that's I think that's largely right. Although I also think it's very nuanced, um, right? And that you have to, like taking the long view of this. Like yes, that's true, and there is a lot that we are losing with legalization that I'm really going to miss, right? And and you know, and that means you know some of it is really good quality weed grown by people who just love growing weed who are never going to go out and get a license, um, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't have the ability to, or they don't want to, or they're anti-establishment or whatever it is. DM us for our PO box, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and, and but at the same time, like to Dave's point. If in the end we get a system that's not ideal, right? We fight to get whatever we can in terms of social equity, and we do as you know, we do the best job that we can. But in the end, right, we're not ending capitalism through cannabis legalization, and we're going to have a system that's dominated by rich people because that's the country we live in. But nobody's getting arrested for cannabis offenses anymore in the country. That's a big deal, right? And we can't, you know, we especially when you talk about who was getting arrested, if that's over and you're not and we don't have, you know, marijuana as an excuse to go and harass and lock up black and brown people, we have to look at that piece of it as a win as well while we still mourn the stuff that we lose. And there's a cultural side of this that we're losing too that I like I kind of mourn, right? You know, there's a there's a there's a a kinship in cannabis's illegality that we're losing with the legal market, right? Like I go to industry events now, you go to you know, or cannabis, you know, cannabis events and whatnot. And, you know, you stand around in a circle of people and everybody's got their own vape pen or they might have their own, you know, dock walker joint and everyone's got the strain that they like and the, you know, the cannabis that they like. And they're not, you know, they might, you might like give somebody a little hit just so they could try something different, but you're not compelled to share. But like in the illicit economy, absolutely you are. Like whoever's got the weed, you're going to share it with whoever you, you know, with whoever you're with. And that's part of the normalization, right? Like the idea of like going to a bar and you have five people go to a bar and one person orders a beer and just passes it around the table, like is, is freaking absurd, right? Like we would never do that. But like that's how cannabis has been consumed, traditionally for you know for 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 decades and decades and it created this communal environment and this sense of you know belonging and sense of community among cannabis consumers a part a part of it the actual physical sharing and part of it the fact that it was illegal and we're doing this in alleys and we're you know we're a little outside the mainstream of society like we're losing all of that and i will trade that in to not arrest 850,000 people a year for cannabis offenses it's a trade i'm willing to make but yeah. i'm really still going to miss it yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is a major trade-off. That is a major thing we're losing is the culture, is this sort of our thing. You know, obviously, I welcome no cannabis arrest, right? But in that future, it's like the trade-off for those minorities is, hey, you won't get arrested and locked up for nonviolent crimes, but you'll be locked out of this industry. You'll get. You'll have to watch... The same people who were not victimized by this drug war make millions and millions of dollars and you will be shut out of that. And I think that feeds into the infinite, unending class war that is America, that is American and it should. capitalism. It should feed into that because it, it, because it is absolutely part of it. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, every cannabis arrest, and I think I'm sure this matches with your experience. Where did the cannabis activists come from? From people who got arrested or saw people in their lives get arrested. and Absolutely. So, it's the number one reason why people joined SSDP, joined Normal, joined these organizations is because they or someone they loved had a negative negative encounter with law enforcement over, over cannabis or drugs. 
And so as we now move from that fight, and that fight, of course, continues, and we are well aware that many people who listen to the podcast still live in Prohibition places, and we're with you, and that fight doesn't end. But as we extend it to this economic fight, we need to nurture and fuel those resentments into a critique of the larger economics. And so I'm going to make a second motion uh, that we name this uh, Down with Capitalism with Chris Crane as the episode. <laughs> Death, Death to yeah. Capitalism with Chris Crane. You're cool with I'm that, sure, right, Chris? I'm sure, my business part, I'm sure my business partners will love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. It was absolutely incredible hearing about the founding of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Chris, thanks so much for telling us about it. And for all of your activism, for all your advocacy work, truly, we're seeing the positive impacts of that now. And we're all very, very thankful for it. And if you are a young person hearing this and you're like, how am I going to get involved in cannabis activism, in cannabis advocacy? How am I going to help to ensure that the legal industry is equitable for everybody involved? Look up SSDP, join SSDP, show up at a meeting. Get involved. That's how you do it. That's how it all starts. And we really hope that this conversation with Chris Crane has planted that seed for you. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I, uh, hopefully next time in L.A. we can, uh, we can burn a big joint together. Um, yes. But this was, this was a lot of fun. We would love that. Thanks so much. And thanks to you at home for listening to Great Moments in Weed History. We'll see you next time. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.